0: Good morning, King's Cross. It's good to be with you, friends and visitors as well. We welcome you. Glad that you're here. My name is Clint, Lee, pastor, one of the elders of this church. We're happy that you've chosen to join in worship uh, with us this morning, and and maybe you are indeed here to worship. Uh, Perhaps you're here, not sure what you believe. Uh, Maybe you're not a Christian. Uh, Either way, we're glad you're here and glad you've chosen to be with us, and pray that you be encouraged, and even, as my brother prayed, drawn unto Christ And his beauty uh, more when you leave than when you came in. There's a lot of discussion going on today about the state of Christianity generally and the church specifically. And I appreciate, I'm fine with the discussion. I think it's good for us to have conversations about kind of as culture shifts, as things change in the world and as Christianity is more and more marginalized and Christians are more and more moral minorities in our view of the world, our view of ethics, our view of culture, our view of how things ought to be. I think it's good to ask questions and have conversations about church, how church ought to be done and how we ought to live as Christians in a broken world. Unfortunately, I find that many times in these conversations, what's lacking from people expressing very strong opinions is any reference to the Bible. I think plenty of people have strong opinions about what the church ought to be, what Christians ought to be and ought to be doing, and often express those opinions, again, with no reference to the scriptures. Often we find from our cultural moment critiques grounded in our cultural moment and in the in our feelings and observations of the cultural moment. Instead, I think what is better for Christians, those who follow the Lord Jesus and the precious scriptures that were just prayed, is that we would return to the text, that we go to the scriptures and we'd ask, Father, would you teach us what your church is to be according to your word? Would you teach us and would you form a people built on the scriptures, an authentic community of Christ followers? Not cultural Christianity, but give us the real thing. Are good conversations to have. One of the ways we love to do that is taught to, to, by study and read through the Gospels generally, but then specifically, I love studying through the Gospel of Matthew, and that's what we're doing. This morning, we, uh, I am preaching our 48th sermon in Matthew, so we've been in this mug for a while. Now, we haven't done those 48 straight. It's been uh, a couple years. We spread some things out here and there to mix it up, but our 48th sermon in the Gospel of Matthew, and the series title we're calling this study is Authentically Christian, Following King Jesus Together. And we're asking that question, what does it look like to be an authentic follower of Christ according to Scripture? Not Christ we invent in some culture, but actually the Christ who revealed himself and is revealed in his word. One of the reasons I love preaching through the Gospel of Matthew is because it's structured. Some have called it "it's the, the discipleship manual of the church. It's structured around five major discourses or teaching sections of Jesus. The first, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the most famous sermon ever preached. Then suddenly you go to Matthew chapter 10 and Jesus gives these instructions to his disciples on the mission that he's sending them out on and expectations of what that mission is to be like. Then over Matthew chapter 13, Jesus instructs and teaches and gives parables about the kingdom and what the kingdom of heaven is like. And then we come to Matthew chapter 18, the fourth discourse. And in this discourse, he's going to address what is an authentic Christian community like? This new covenant community that he's forming, when you bump into it, what are the characteristics you should recognize as a community built on Christ? And so we come to Matthew chapter 18 in our study, and we're gonna see three dominant characteristics of authentic Christian community. We'll cover them in three different sermons. The first one that we see in Matthew chapter 18, verse one to 14 is the dominant characteristic that you should see, and we'll see in our text today is humility. Then in a couple of weeks, when we jump into Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 20, we'll look at church discipline. And the dominant characteristic you should see there is accountability. And then finally, there's going to be a pair about, about forgiveness. And that's the last characteristic we see in chapter 18. So humility, accountability, and forgiveness. These are characteristics of authentic Christian community according to Jesus, particularly in the fourth discourse in Matthew. So I'm excited to jump into this and study this and even praying, God, would you make King's Cross characterized by these things? Would you make us a church as an authentic representation of a community of Christ gathered together in humility with accountability and dominated by this incredible grace and mercy that leads to forgiveness. So let's pray and ask for God's help. And we'll look today at humility in chapter 18, 1 through 14. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, edifying to these people, and even draw sinners into repentance. We pray in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. So humility, that's the dominant characteristic in these first 14 verses And we're going to see kind of evidences of the kind of humility Jesus says ought to typify his people in community in three particular ways. Three evidences. You can see, oh, I see the humility Jesus talks about in these ways. The first way, greatness is turned upside down. Greatness is turned upside down. So when we step into a Christian community, we've got we've had tons of visitors recently. One of the things as a pastor right now this church and with the rest of the pastors we're talking about is it's incredibly overwhelming to look out right now at the faces in the room and feel like I don't recognize as many as I do recognize. <laughs> That's a bit overwhelming. And so part of the thing is, okay, when these visitors, and so we welcome, we're glad that you're here, but King's Cross, these visitors peering in ought to uh, look and see this characteristic of humility among us. And the first way they're going to be able to make the observation, if you're looking for a new church, you should be making observations, looking for this. Do you step into this community and see their whole definition of greatness is turned completely upside down from the world's? Listen, uh, just human beings, it is natural for us to jockey for status, to try to figure out who is the greatest among us. Go out to any playground, you're going to see kids orienting on that playground to find out who is the greatest on the playground. Go into any classroom and you're going to see students trying to figure out who's the greatest student in the classroom. Any business and employees are thinking about who's climbing up the corporate ladder. One business competing with other businesses to determine which is the greatest business. And politicians, good night, willing to do whatever it takes to climb ladders. And I'm not saying there's not faithful politicians. Praise God for faithful, godly politicians. But in political culture, in the day that we live in, climbing, trying to elevate themselves, willing to tear down their opponents. But often, unfortunately, we even see it in the church. Pastors jockeying for authority and position. Churches jockeying, competing with other churches to find out who's a greater or better church. It's natural for human communities to establish, observe, and try to climb a social pecking order. So too was it with Jesus and the disciples. So we learn from Luke and Mark's account of what we're reading right now that, uh, that the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. So increasingly as they realize, wait a minute, Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is the Christ. He really is the king. And we're his closest disciples. That means somebody is going to be like his right hand. That means one of us is going to be like the second. If he is the greatest, well, who's the greatest among us? Who's his favorite? Who's the best? So you see in humanity, even in these disciples following King Jesus, they're realizing he really is Messiah. Well, then which one of us is most important to him? Even mom Dukes gets involved. <laughs> so the, the sons of Zebedee, later in chapter 20, we'll read. They come up, she comes up to Jesus like, hey, Jesus, can you make it where my sons sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom? Like everybody, every natural sinful human being on this planet observes social pecking order and wants to climb to the top. The disciples want to settle this matter, and so they point blank, chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, what is it we're after with this question? What is it we're after, all of us, as we're trying to climb these social ladders? Significance impact we want to know who is most remarkable among us who is most special who stands out who is the best who's at the top of the ladder that we're competing in in any given moment and i want you to notice how jesus answers the question first before we even get to his answer i want you to notice he doesn't rebuke the category itself so he doesn't say how dare you think about greatness jesus doesn't do that he doesn't rebuke the category or even the notion of it why Why doesn't he say, hey, this is a bad question, this is a bad desire, and just totally obliterate it? Well, because human beings, even as as Pastor Hez was just praying in a pastoral prayer, are made in the image of God. And a part of being made in his image, he created us to, to practice responsible dominion and to reign and rule on the earth as image bearers reflecting the one who made us in his image. So the desire to be great is because, no, we're supposed to reflect God unlike any of the rest of creation. Trees and ants and birds and animals don't represent God the way we reflect and represent God. And so there is something set apart. Humanity, man and woman creating the image of God is the climax of creation. There is something great about being made in the image of God that's right. And so Jesus doesn't immediately just say, hey, that question is a problem. In fact, even if you remember back to Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says about John the Baptist, truly I say to you among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he so he makes clear John the Baptist up to this point is the greatest but this kingdom community I'm forming even the least in that kingdom is greater even than he so what is going on what's in this quest for greatness what is it that we're about in a worldly sense what is the problem with this quest for greatness well in the world the world's understanding our natural understanding apart from God greatness is about power it's about prestige It's about success and money and comfort and ease and being served and being treated as special. Now, in and of themselves, those individual things aren't bad necessarily. But people want to get to the top because at the top, you can get everybody else to serve you. People want to get to the top so that people are underneath them and their life is better and they can use people to serve their own desire and wants. And so in a broken world, greatness is only determined. And again, all of this is not always bad, but greatness is determined in military leaders by how many victories you have and how much power you achieve for your people. Greatness is determined among athletes by who wins the most games or is the best among their uh, competitors. Great scholars discover and instruct better than their colleagues in their particular fields. Or in today's culture, great influencers have greater followings on social media. And so with the disciples, very similarly, Christians can just inherently assume and think the same way about the church. Great Christian communities, great churches are those with the most people in them. Great churches are those with the biggest budgets, the biggest buildings, the most influential members of society that attend and go to those churches. But Jesus says, it's not greatness that's your problem that you want that. It's that your whole definition of greatness is completely wrong. Let me turn it upside down for you. So they ask the question and Jesus turns everything upside down. Look again at verse 2. Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn or you're transformed or you're converted into this totally new understanding. So unless you flip the script on your entire understanding of what greatness is and become like children, you will never even enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So notice what Jesus does. He transforms our understanding of greatness, of leadership, and of, of kingdom strategy. Now, in the ancient world, children were the lowest, uh, among the lowest rung of members of society. So a man's status was increased by having lots of children. But children themselves had no power or prestige or significance in society. They were, they were viewed as weak, as dependent, as those who are insignificant in a society and culture. Those without power or potential to do anything significant and so we're brushed to the side. similarly in our day People like the youth of young adulthoods. That's prized in our culture, but children can be seen as kind of in the way and inconvenient and Pushed to the side so much so that even some people would say let's figure out how to abort more of them to get rid of them Because they're a problem So in this moment like children Jesus grabs this illustration and says this child you think is insignificant No, 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 I'm about to turn your entire strategy and understanding of what greatness is totally upside down. They might be little in stature and little in social significance in the world, not so in the kingdom. So Christ is turning everything upside down. He puts this child in the midst. And just imagine this illustration. He's got the child. And and you can imagine the disciples, again, they've been arguing and fighting, which one of us is the greatest? What is Jesus doing with this little kid? Like in the worldly sense, surely this kid's not the greatest. Why would he even be in the conversation? Sometimes they would be like, Jesus, these little kids are coming to you. Get them away from you. Like you're supposed to be an impressive rabbi and little kids aren't seen as impressive. What are we doing right now? Jesus puts this little child in their midst and says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like this child, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, before we even start talking about greatness, you can't even get in unless you are like this little child. So i'll answer your question but i'll answer your question in a minute first i'm going to expose your faulty understanding of what greatness is and i'm going to remind you you entered the kingdom by grace through this humble dependence upon my grace you didn't work your way into this kingdom you didn't earn your way into this kingdom and so when you start asking me about greatness i want to expose you forgot how you got in and now suddenly you think you get in by humility but then you do things to make yourself proud this is foolish You don't climb ladders and think better about yourself when you enter the whole community by grace to begin with. Like You're not even thinking rightly about what greatness is. Much like born-again language in John, Jesus is saying, unless you turn away from self-dependence and self-reliance and self-provision and turn to Christ-dependence and Christ-reliance and Christ-provision, you can't even get into my kingdom, let alone think about greatness. Friends, this is the danger. If you forgot how you get in, you'll totally get the definition of what it means to be great while you're within it. If you forget that you entered by grace, you'll forget that you have to grow great by grace. How foolish are we when we enter by grace and then grow proud? How awful is it If an outsider, a non-Christian steps into a Christian community where these people are saying, don't worry, God's grace is here for sinners. Repent and believe and trust in grace. And then they get around us and they see all kinds of self-righteous arrogance. Do you see the hypocrisy? When Jesus is like, no, no, this is not the way the community I'm forming behaves or responds. This is not a characteristic of my community. Self-righteous pride and arrogance is not comfortable in the church of Jesus Christ. It ought not be. How awful. But Christian, remember, you entered God's people by grace. And so he says, once we remember that, have that reminder and how quickly we are to forget it. Then he says, verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So humility is the path into the kingdom and it's the path into kingdom greatness. So humility and a humble dependence upon God's grace is what gets you into the kingdom. And a humble dependence upon God's grace is what makes you great and useful in his kingdom so again he doesn't say don't desire to be great he says you need greatness redefined you can't define your greatness like the world does you must define it the way i do in my kingdom now to be clear jesus is not saying be childish in your knowledge or your conduct or your righteousness he already made that clear in the sermon on the mount so his first teaching section his first discourse matthew chapter 5 verse 19 He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So just to be clear, when he's putting this child forth as an illustration of what it means to be great and saying being humble like this child, he's not saying, therefore, don't care about righteousness. Or don't care about what's being taught. Don't care about truth. Just make anything up. That's not what he's saying. He was saying, no, no. no. If you want to be least in the kingdom of heaven, let the world define what you think great is. If you want to be least in the kingdom of heaven, let influencers determine what you think beauty is. If you want to be least in the kingdom of heaven, let politicians teach you what morality is. If you want to be least in the kingdom of heaven, let the culture determine your sexual ethics. If you want to be least in the kingdom of heaven, let God's word sit underneath your judgment rather than you sit underneath it. So again, he's not minimizing truth. He's not telling us to be children and don't, oh, I didn't know the Bible said that. No, no, that's not what he's saying. Clearly, that's not what he's saying. He's not calling us to be like children in our commitment to the truth and to righteousness. But friends, that's not what he was talking about also in in Matthew chapter 5. Do you remember how he opens the Sermon on the Mount? He opens up the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. And what's the first Beatitude? Those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So even in order to enter this life and to understand truth and to live righteously, you first got to understand I'm spiritually bankrupt. I come spiritually bankrupt with nothing but sin. So he says, no, 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 what I'm talking to you about, the life I'm living to you begins by grace and then continues by grace. So this life, must it doesn't water down truth, it doesn't water down righteousness. That's not the childlike attributes we're talking about. So what is is this childlike attribute then, Christ? What are you telling us to be like children? What is it that this child is a perfect illustration of? Well, he's saying this child, think about a child. A child is totally dependent upon someone else to take care of them. A child is totally reliant, and his humility is on display in that he needs a parent to instruct him, to provide for him, to love him, to care for him. A child is under no presumption that she can take care of herself. She relies on her parents. She's totally reliant upon another for life. Jesus says kingdom greatness requires this kind of humble dependence. You enter with this humble dependence, and you pursue greatness with this humble dependence. God, my entire life depends on you. I need you to instruct me and to guide me. I need you to provide for me. I need you to protect me. I need you to teach me. I need you to show me the way to go because I'm like a child. I can't do anything apart from you. I need you. This humble dependence is how we grow in kingdom greatness. He turns our definition of greatness all the way upside down. The greater you grow, the more reliant on Christ you are. Growing greater in the kingdom doesn't mean you need God less. So this is the problem with a worldly thought and understanding of greatness. As you think, man, the greater I'll get, the less I will need God. No, not in the kingdom of Christ. Greatness is I realize more and more how much I need him. Even more than when I first believed, I know how much today I need him. I can't be a faithful pastor and proclaimer of God's word without the grace of God in Christ. I have, no, I have as much need for Christ in this moment as I ever have the moment I first believed. Growing greatness in the kingdom is realizing, God, I need you as much now as I ever have in my life. Humble dependence is the measure of kingdom greatness. That's the measure of kingdom greatness. How much are you aware of your need of God and casting yourself on God's grace? And that, you can see that when you're doing that, that transforms even your relationships. And, and greatness and the measurement of greatness in the kingdom. Over in Luke chapter 22, the Lord Jesus is having the last supper with his disciples. And he has an interaction with them. And he talks about this again, turning uh, uh, greatness upside down. He says, the kings of Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. So notice what he's saying. Hey, the king of pagans, those who don't have me as their God, they exercise lordship. They domineer those under their charge. And they benefit from this reality. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I'm among you as the one who serves. So then he says, let me give you an illustration. When you go to a restaurant, and there's a famous person in a restaurant with a whole entourage of people doing everything for them, who's greater in the moment, the person sitting down getting served by the waiter or the waiter? And he's like, oh, of course, the person sitting down getting served. That's how we treat greatness in the world. That's right, but not so among you. Think about it. I'm the king of kings, and I'm serving you, the Lord's Supper. I'm the waiter. So if you're going to be great in my kingdom, you got to understand greatness is about serving others, not yourself. Greatness in the world is about serving yourself. Greatness in the kingdom is about serving God and serving others. He turns the entire thing upside down. The king is serving. And what is this pointing us to ultimately, even in that moment? His broken body and his spilled blood on the cross in the supper. So he's being a waiter, serving the disciples Showing them this, this bread is broken for you like my body. This blood is spilled for you. This is what we're pointing to. This is what I'm showing you to. And what is the cross the perfect picture of? It's the greatest greatness there ever was. The highest, we just sang, became the lowest. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross kingdom leadership kingdom greatness is turned totally upside down according to the world greatness is not about accumulation of privilege and power it's about using whatever privilege and power you have to serve others greatness is not about self-protection but self-sacrificial service to others Greatness is not about privilege and platforms and power, but it's about humility and generosity and service and dependence, dependence upon Christ and transparency before others. It's not about looking like you have it all together. It's about pointing to Christ even when you don't have it all together. In the kingdom of Christ, the greater you grow, the lower you're willing to go. The more mature and the greater you are in the kingdom, the more you realize nothing's beneath me. My king washed dirty feet. What could be beneath me? Nothing. The greater you grow in the kingdom, the more you realize I'm just a humble servant. And whatever I can do to serve others, that's what I'll do. Because that's what it looks like to follow King Jesus, not the world's definition of greatness. In the kingdom of Christ, little is large. And large is little. And so therefore, who's heroes? who are heroes in the church? Let me just point out a, a few right now. No Sita. And Linda, widows who serve in the kitchen to make sure you got some coffee with Phil and Gail on Sunday mornings. Widows totally dependent upon God in unique ways that most of us know nothing about. Serving Christ. What is that? That's greatness. That's greatness in Christ's kingdom. The world might say that's not great, but Christ says that's greatness. You want to be great? Look at Linda and Nosita. Model, follow after them. This is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of Christ. Faithfulness, orphans, children, and disciples who are humble like orphans and children who've been adopted into the Father's family. Those are the people that are great in the kingdom of God. That's why we love children. That's why Eric and Breer are, are seeking to raise money to adopt a child. That's why we care about foster care. That's why we care about vulnerable and the least of these. Why? Because we follow King Jesus. And greatness in his kingdom is about looking out for the vulnerable, not abusing them. Yeah, yeah. To such belong the kingdom of Christ, they are great. Humble reliance upon God is the measure of kingdom greatness. And this changes the community. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So, friends, what this means is Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The way you relate to those who I call great is how you relate to me. He takes it personal. When you receive one little one, a child or a weak one, one who's humbly dependent, Jesus says, that's how you're relating to me. I take that personally. So when you receive them, you receive me. So we shouldn't expect the presence of Christ in a church that doesn't welcome the weak. Churches that give status to people with power and privilege and prestige in the world are churches you should expect the presence of Christ not to be there. But the churches that say, no, no, no. if you're humbly reliant and needy and trusting in God alone for grace, welcome in your family. Welcome to the needy party looking to the God who's able to meet our needs. So once you understand, entrance and greatness is defined by humble reliance. Then you understand qualifications and status in this community is different from any other. You realize the weak and vulnerable, the reliant, the humble, the ones who are childlike are those who we welcome into the family. James, overread, where I, I need to, to speed up, but James chapter 1 at the end says, true religion is this, the, those who care for the widow and the orphan. And then he gives an entire illustration that says, look, when the wealthy person, the impressive person, the celebrity comes into your service, don't bring them up to the front and leave the poor person in the back. That's partiality. That's not kingdom living. Stop thinking of like the world. That's that's worldly greatness, not kingdom greatness. We welcome those who are humbly reliant upon God. The church is not to be a community of people fighting each other to climb to the top. We're a community of people stooping down to love, serve, and celebrate one another. Those, Those who are humble and needy. So this is the first evidence. This kind of humility where the definition of greatness is turned completely upside down. Second evidence that you've stepped into authentic Christian community marked by the kind of humility Jesus is talking about is that personal sin is mortified. Personal sin is mortified or put to death. You know you've stepped into the kind of humble community Jesus is building when you step into a community that says, I am passionately trying to kill off my sin. This is what we see. So King Jesus addresses sin. Now, in in verses 6 and 7, first he addresses sin against us. So I want to point this out and say humility responds in a particular way when other people sins against us. But primarily in verse 7 and 8, it's how we respond to our own sin, not to the sin of others, that demonstrates and shows our humility. Now, we have to acknowledge, though, if we are humbly dependent and we let that be known, well, then we're uniquely vulnerable. We're admitting our weakness. So as a football coach, I've coached football, I've coached sports. I got to coach soccer for the first time yesterday. It was entertaining, but that's a side note. We'll talk about that later. But... I've got to coach sports. Like on a field, I don't want my players to show their weakness. Because then the opposing team will attack that vulnerability and see it and they'll come after it. So no, no, like stand up. Don't lean over. If you put your hands on your knees, they're like, you no, you're tired. They're going to come out. Like don't do that. But in the church, it's like, no, 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 it's okay. Let your weakness be displayed. Okay, well then that means we're vulnerable. Other people might take advantage of us. They're going to take advantage of us in a broken world because they have the wrong definition of greatness. So how do we think about when others sin against us? What does this humility that characterizes Christian community do when other people sin against us? Well, number one, we trust God will bring justice to all sin against us. We trust his justice. We trust vengeance belongs to the Lord. That's what humility does. That's what humility looks like when other people sin against us. Look at verse 6. And we do this because we know Jesus takes it personal. So he takes it personal when we're welcoming He takes it personal when people sin against his people. Verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now, again, notice Jesus is using children as a metaphor. So he's saying disciples, so one of these little ones who believe in me, like these little ones, so I use the child as the illustration. So he's big upping children in general. But specifically right here, he's talking about disciples. Any of these little ones, any of these people who are choosing childlike dependence upon me, Whoever causes them uh, them to sin. So he's addressing that reality. And here's what you need to know about Jesus. Again, when someone sins against his disciples, he takes it personally. And you need to know Jesus hates sin and he loves those who humbly rely upon him. Therefore, he especially hates it when somebody sins against his own. Look what he says. Again, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone Fastened around his neck to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So Jesus is very clear. Like those who sin against my people, these little ones who humbly rely upon me and take advantage of their vulnerability, justice is coming. Wrath is coming. It'd be better if they would have, you know, like a, a, a countertop fastened around their neck and thrown into the sea. Wrath is coming. That's going to happen. So he says, it's, it's a serious thing when you sin against the people of God. Just like he said, If they received them, they receive me. So he's saying, When you sin against them, you sin against me. Acts chapter 9 again, the apostle Paul, when he's converted, but he's been persecuting the church, and Jesus shows up and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But Paul's been persecuting the church. But he asked him, why are you doing this to me? Because he identifies with his people so closely that for someone else to sin against his people is to sin against him, and he takes it personally. And so what do we do? What does humility look like? We trust his justice. We've got a different standard of justice. It's coming. Like, we trust he's going to work it out in the end. Nobody's getting away with anything. Either, just like us, their sin will be punished on Calvary, and they'll repent and believe and they'll be part of the family, set free from their, the penalty of their sin and death, just like us. Or they'll stand before God on judgment Day and account for their sin, including the sin against us. So humility understands in the new community, I don't have to go get vengeance for people who sin against me. My God will take care of it in the end. Therefore, we live out Paul's charge in Romans chapter 12 with this new source of justice and this transformed upside down way to deal with even being sinned against. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his held, head. Do not become overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, can I just pick on a horrendous fate, uh, phrase that sometimes Christians use? Sometimes we be like, "Yo, kill them with kindness." How about you just be kind? <laughs> like, kill them with kindness is still you trying to take vengeance, but from some moral high ground. Like that's ridiculous. <laughs> so Christians, let's just admit it: we've thought that way. That's anti-gospel. No, no, we're not going to kill them with kindness. We're going to be kind to them the way Christ was kind to us when we didn't deserve it. Not because they deserve it. Not because that makes us less vulnerable. Not because they won't take advantage of us anymore. But because our God has given us gospel and given us kindness. And so we relate differently to those who sin against us. We overcome evil with good. And we pray like our Lord Jesus and Stephen, the first martyr. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Knowing either they will look to Christ and be forgiven or again, they will face his wrath. So again, that's how we respond with humility to those who sin against us. But much more importantly now, in this new community, the humility that distinguishes us is how we deal with our own sin. We want to put it to death. Authentic Christian communities more concerned and bothered by the sin in our hearts and the sin in the church than we are the sin in the world. Far too long the church has had so much fun bashing the culture and those outside the church for their sin. This is foolish like non-christians will always live like non-christians and ultimately we don't merely want non-christians to live like christians we want non-christians to become christians and then live with jesus with us so the goal is like we need to stop worrying like no no the world again we don't water down our ethics we don't uh, water down biblical convictions no we 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 respect them we teach them we say them we're not afraid of them we're not ashamed of them but our biggest concern is that we kill the sin within that's what it looks like to have the humility of Christ Jesus in our church. The world's loaded with temptation traps. Sin leads to death. Sin is destructive. Therefore, Jesus says in verse 8, If your hand or your foot calls you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye calls you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is almost the exact same thing he says in chapter 5, verse 29 and 30, dealing with lust. Now, he's using hyperbole. So come to church next week, please, with all of your limbs and your eyes. <laughs> so Jesus is using a, a, a literary device of hyperbole. And what's his point? Whatever it takes for you to kill the sin plaguing you, do it. That's his point. He's not literally talking about like, cutting off limbs. He's saying what, cut off the limbs of your sin. Whatever it takes, put it to death. This is what Christ is teaching. But don't water down. Again, it's, it's, it's a, uh, um, a literary device, but don't water down his point. Some of you are in a relationship that's causing you to sin. You need to break up. You need to cut it off. Some of you can't be trusted to be alone with your phone because you're looking at stuff you shouldn't look at. Get rid of the phone. Like you, he's, Whatever it takes. Some of you can't handle alcohol. Stop drinking it. Some of you are addicted to drugs. You're addicted to sex. You need to get help. You need to reach out and say, I can't get out of this. I need Whatever it takes, cut it off. Yeah. You've got to stop playing with your sin and threatening like it's not going to destroy you. It means to kill you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Christ says, whatever it takes, yeah. Yeah. pluck out your eyes of your sin. Yeah. Yeah. Cut off the limbs of your sin. Whatever it takes, put it to death. If watching those shows elicits you to lust and rebellion, stop watching the shows. If in your life, oh, but listen, but then my friends are going to think I'm weird. Who cares? It's better for your friends to think you're weird than for you to go to hell. This is what Christ is saying. Whatever it takes, it's better to be awkward in this life. It's better to have a little bit of suffering now, but to be in glory forever. Christ says, whatever it takes, put your sin to death. It's better to live in light of heaven rather than fake it and go to hell. Be violent towards the sin in your life, whatever it takes. Make war against it. Destroy it. Suck the lifeblood out of it. Stott says, not mutilation, but mortification is the path of holiness. This is what Christ taught. John Owen says, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Paul says in Romans eight thirteen, if you live according to the spirit, if you live according to the flesh, you bring death. But by the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. So we put to death the deeds of the body. Think, even in this moment, in this sermon, when Jesus is preaching, Judas is listening. He proved in the end to be a phony, faking it till he would make it, and he didn't make it. Revealed to be one who was not a true follower of Christ. So we fight sin, we put it to death. If we want to have the humility that follows King Jesus, greatness is turned upside down, and we're all trying to kill the sin in our life. Lastly, Straying sheep are pursued. Straying sheep are pursued. Now, verse 10, Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So do not despise the weak and straying. Brothers and sisters, when greatness is turned upside down and it's about humble reliance upon God, when humility means we're putting our sin to death, Sometimes there's going to be weakness in the body that leads sheep to go astray. Jesus is saying, don't you dare despise one fighting their sin. So we, as passionately as I just did, tell people, put your sin to death. But when they're struggling, we help them. We don't judge them. Regularly we say at King's Cross, as long as you're fighting your sin, you'll never fight alone. We'll always help you fight. We don't despise them. We don't despise those. There's some people probably sitting in a chair next to you that took everything they had just to get here this morning. There's weakness, They're struggling sheep. And Jesus, says, you don't, don't despise those who are weak and humble and relying on Jesus and struggling with their, as they're trying to kill sin, but they're having a hard, you don't despise them. We're gentle with them. And in fact, then he tells a parable. This is what we do with them. This is how we respond. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a 100 sheep and one of them is gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over 99 that never went astray. So we see the heart of the Father. We see the shepherd's heart. Jesus say, whoa, 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 "Whoa, I'm a good shepherd." And sometimes, weak, struggling sheep give themselves to sin, and they're losing battles, and suddenly they go astray. And do you know what a good shepherd does? Not how dare you. Can't believe you. gave yourself over to that sin. It's what you get. Mm-mm. That's worldly greatness talking, that's self-righteous pride talking humble shepherd says no no no, there's just sheep going astray let's go get them somebody's struggling and losing battles let's help them let's go he said i'll leave the 99 to go get the one and when i get back do i not rejoice more over the one who was lost that's now found that doesn't mean he doesn't love the 99 but friends if one of my children went missing do you know nothing would stop me to go find them does that mean i don't love my wife and the children that are safe no of course i do it's just my family's not my family without one of my children so if one's missing, I'm bringing them back so the families together. This is how the church ought to relate to those struggling with sin and straying from the church. We're not us without that individual sheep. We got to go get them. So, again, this is not like we we mortify our sin, we put it to death, we're serious about sin. But did you know our God is sending forth angels to do his work, to help his sheep, that he has a father's heart that says, I'll leave the 99 to go get the one and bring it back safe? How much more so should we say if somebody's missing, we're concerned, we care, we'll help, let's go get them. So if you step into a Christian community that's authentically following Jesus, there should be an entirely new definition of greatness. Least of these. The way up is down. We're not impressive. We're reliant on the impressive Savior. We're those who are saying, yes, the world's going to sin against us. We humbly trust God to take care of their sin against us. We're not even, vengeance belongs to the Lord. He's got it. My main concern is the sin within me. And man, if you need help, let me help you. And brothers and sisters, if I ever go astray, please come get me. If you ever go astray, we'll come get you. Because we see the pastoral heart of our sovereign God who's a good shepherd and we understand the fight gets difficult and sometimes we lose battles. We understand Christ has won the war, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he rose on the third day, that he's going to take us to glory and that he's committed to get us to glory. Which is why in verse 14, Jesus says, it's it's my father's will that not one of them should perish. Not one will perish. And one of the means the good shepherd goes and gets his sheep is through his people. This humble community. Marked by this humility Christ gives to us. So, King's Cross, I close this morning saying, Are you the kind of church member who notices if somebody's missing? It's been five or six weeks, who's been missing? You send a text, you pray for them, let them know you're concerned, just checking in. And I'm not talking about that, hey, I ain't seen you in a few weeks, like judgmental, like, you know, you ain't checked your boxes off. I'm talking about like a phone call I had with a member that just said, Sister, I'm just concerned about you. Like, usually, when somebody avoids the gathering of the people of God, more serious sin is present and destruction is coming. God has given us the faith family to be a grace gift to us, to help us fight our sin, to help us keep the right definition of greatness. We can't do it alone. The Christian faith is a faith meant to live in the Christian community following Jesus together. And it's not the Father's will that any of them be lost. So, King's Cross, are you helping your brothers and sisters fight sin? We'll talk more about that in two weeks. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 talks about accountability. That not only do we take it serious in us, we take it serious in the church and we're willing to hold one another accountable and practice church discipline humbly and gently. But may we be the kind of church that as visitors peer in, they see, man, there's a humility here that I know nothing of. And may we point them to Christ, the humble king who died and rose for us. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus.